morning, everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com. By St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey. By Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck. Located in Scranton, Pennsylvania, as always. A handful of stuff we're going to get into today in a world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Chicago Bears in the second half of this show. I'm going to break down their quarterback situation. Obviously, it's going to you know turn some heads their decision to sign Andy Dalton. I'm going to touch on that in a little bit and make a comparison of Nick Foles to another former NFL quarterback. I'm going to have to talk a little bit about Kyrie Irving and whether his situation is more of a mental thing. Is it a mental health reason why he's sitting out so many games? Or is it just the guy making a decision that he doesn't want to play? We're going to start out today... Thinking about baseball, congratulations to Carlos Rodon, who obviously for the last couple of years has been through a lot. Tommy John surgery, less than two years back, throws a no-hitter for the Chicago White Sox. Has a perfect game, 25 outs, two to go, ends up hitting Roberto Perez. Great, great accomplishment. Obviously, we haven't had a perfect game in the Major League since 2012, but he, he came pretty close to doing so. Um... Now, you think of the value of a Major League Baseball manager. And I'll start with the Chicago White Sox because the, the expectation, at least from owner Jerry Reinsdorf, is that he was going to jump into DeLorean, take a blast from the past, and Tony La Russa was going to all of a sudden bring something to the table that the Chicago White Sox hadn't had in a while. And if you look back at their track record of managers, Rick Renneria was okay. Robin Ventura was okay. Ozzie Guillen, of course, won a World Series championship with them as their manager in 2005. So the thought is, is that this is a team that's ready to win. It's missing one piece. Jerry Reinsdorf forgot that a manager in Major League Baseball isn't going to be the reason you win or lose. There is analytics involved. There's game plans involved. And listen, the manager didn't come up with those little defensive play cards that every player on a baseball diamond refers to. I hate to say it, even Tony La Russa is not writing his own lineup. I don't care what he tells you. Tony La Russa is not determining which pitchers are coming in in games and out of games. Tony La Russa isn't determining what players need to come out of the games and be replaced at any point. So the dream... And this is Jerry Reinsdorf's thought, is that this team was just a manager away. Yet, Jerry Reinsdorf looks more like the owner in the movie Rookie of the Year. When he's saying $3 for a hot dog, thinking that the hot dogs are a quarter apiece. He's that far out of touch. And the problem is, is that, listen, I'm not here to explain something to somebody that's not willing to listen because I think there's a backlash on this. I think fans have it stuck in their heads so much that they want to blame the Major League Baseball manager for everything. And they're, they're only showing their own ignorance. They're only showing their own lack of baseball acumen. They're showing their lack of baseball knowledge. And it's sad. I mean, I'm not here to tell you what you should think and what you shouldn't think. 
But when you go out there and you say a Major League Baseball manager shouldn't have made the lineup this way, you sound like a damn fool because you know that the the manager did not make that call. The manager has a lineup put on his table and says, hey, this is what you're going to post. We ran these algorithms. The analytics staff has worked hard all night to put this lineup together for you. And you're going to copy it from the paper here onto the little sheet so your players know when they're batting and the players that are playing know that they're playing. We have no control over that lineup. Yet the lineup lineups for 30 Major League Baseball teams, assuming every team is playing on a given day, are posted every single day. And every day you have a group of clown fans that want to blame the manager for the lineup when the lineup was not written by the manager. And my goal, maybe I could get through to one person. Maybe there's one person that's watching or listening to the program right now and has it entrenched in their head that the manager does this, the manager does that. Maybe you could just forget that the manager has the same responsibility that they had before. When you go out there and you're critical of the manager, you should take a step back and realize, am I criticizing the manager for something that they did? Because it's not the manager's fault if you don't like the lineup because the manager didn't write the lineup. If there's a a player, a left fielder is playing too far into the left field gap and a ball is ripped down the left field line and a guy gets a triple or an inside-the-park home run, you don't blame the manager for that because he's not the one that told the fielder to play in the position that he was playing. Even Tony La Russa, a Hall of Fame manager, a three-time World Series champion, a manager that has been in what? What are we talking about? Seven World Series? Am I right? And I'm thinking about that off the top of my head. I might be wrong. Six World Series? He, he, he was in? I know he won three, and, you know, 89 with the Athletics, 26 with 2006 with the Cardinals, 2011 with the Cardinals. But, yeah, I think he was in six World Series. So 88, 90, and the other one I think is 2004. As much as he's won, and you could give him credit. You could say that the strength of Tony La Russa's track record is as good of a manager as he was. Because you don't last as long in the business on luck. And certainly the game was much different when Tony La Russa first managed the Chicago White Sox in in the 1980s. He had a lot more control. And, of course, it was Hawk Harrelson, the legendary broadcaster of the Chicago White Sox that was the general manager at the time that made the decision to fire Tony La Russa. He went to the Athletics. He had success. He was great with the Cardinals. Obviously, he's punched his ticket into Baseball's Hall of Fame, and he deserves to be there. But I think you have... You're you're missing something. If you believe that Tony La Russa is the one calling his own shots with the Chicago White Sox. He may have some input on some of the analytics. He may have some input on, you know, his suggestions as far as the pitching staff, the, you know, what order the relievers are going to come in, how the bullpen is configured. 
Um, maybe a little input in what the lineup is, but I'm sorry. Tony La Russa is not doing anything different than 29 other major league managers. And that's basically holding a position that has been castrated from the responsibilities that we've grown to know and love. And as we sit here, so many years into this, five, six, seven, maybe even longer, of the manager management position in Major League Baseball being castrated, you wonder what it is that a Major League Baseball manager does. And I've told you, they are very much in charge of the culture. They're very much in charge of the clubhouse, the players coming to work every day, being motivated. I think he has say in what he's seeing on the field, whether players need rest or not. I think that's something that's legitimate. His responsibility is to implement the game plan. The, implement, the implementation of the game plan comes from the algorithms and the analytics staff that put the game plan together. His responsibility is to implement that game plan. And if he doesn't implement that game plan, he's not going to last very long. Because you know what? That whole gut reaction thing that fans dream that a Major League Baseball manager does, those that do it better be right 100% of the time or they're going to be out of a job. And when you say, hey, fire Aaron Boone, fire Luis Rojas, you might as well fire the general manager and everybody in the front office at the same time because they are all working together. They're all working, they're all working collectively to make the decisions and most of the decisions are made for the manager. Oh my God, I can't believe he took the pitcher out after 80 pitches. That wasn't his call. can't believe that so-and-so is batting third. That was not his call. And I'll continue to talk about this because I think it, it's, it's getting to a point where it's embarrassing when you know I go on Twitter or I hear in a crowd when I'm amongst fans at a, a baseball game and the first reaction is to blame a manager for something that they had nothing to do with. You're embarrassing yourself. You're making yourself look like a fool. A manager in Major League Baseball doesn't have anywhere near the responsibility that you think they do. Yes, they're the first to fall. When shit hits the fan, the manager is the first one to lose their job. That's still true. They are the ultimate number one scapegoat. There's no doubt about that. But in most cases, they end up losing their jobs for stuff that's out of their control. Because they're in a catch-22. Like I just said, a manager does not want to listen to the instructions that they're given. The data that's handed to them, the algorithms, the lineup that's printed up from a computer, they better be right. They better be right 100% of the time. They don't have the ability to be wrong. Because if they're wrong, all of a sudden we're talking about insubordination. We're not talking about, oh man, it was, it was his philosophy and it, it ended up not working out because his beliefs didn't work out the way he thought they would. No, this is deeper. We're talking about insubordination here. We're talking about somebody that has a job and a responsibility to do things a certain way and they've chosen to not do that. So that's why you see a difference in the hiring process when it comes to a major league manager. You see guys hired out of the front office. You see guys that have no experience 
the retreads, you don't see too many of them. You know, unless you're talking about somebody like A.J. Hinch, who was with the Astros and won a World Series championship. But you look back at this, and I'm going to keep talking about it because it bothers me. It bothers me for so many reasons. But if you compare sports, look at football. The hiring of a pro football head coach is bringing in his philosophy. It's bringing in his people. He is the one that's in charge of the culture, which is similar to Major League Baseball manager, but that's it. That's the only similarities between a pro football head coach and a Major League Baseball manager. They're both responsible for the players being motivated to come to work. They're both responsible for the players you know, working together, creating team bonding activities. You see Joe Madden's very good at that. But X's and O's, the coach come from the coach in the National Football League, come from the head coach. And he delegates. He's got his coordinators. He's got all his position coaches. He brings in his own staff. But in the end, it's his call on what kind of offense the team's running, what kind of defense the team's running. You know, what, what are they going to do on special teams? What type of team are they going to be? Physical? Are they going to be physical in the secondary, physical on the offensive line? That all comes from the coach's philosophy. Baseball, pitcher's going to go deep in the game? No, that's an organizational thing. How far Carlos Rodon was going to pitch when he's got to know a perfect game going? That wasn't Tony Lewis's call. He gets a call into his earpiece, or he gets a text message, hey, Carlos Rodon's throwing too many pitches. He's got to come out. He's obligated to get off his ass, walk to the mound, and take that pitcher out. Once again, we think that the manager has so much power in baseball, and he doesn't. The reality is he just doesn't. You know, kind of going around the league a little bit. I... I I'm rooting for the White Sox because I think there's a there's a, a a weird narrative and almost a cancel culture. Tony La Russa got a DUI. Tony La Russa maybe isn't woke enough for today's America. So there's people that are rooting for this guy to fail. I want to see him win a World Series. I think this White Sox team as constructed is good enough that they could win in spite of anybody that their manager was. If Rick Renneria was there, if Robin Ventura was there, you're talking about a situation where this team is it's got the ability to win right now. Giolito, Lance Lynn, Keuchel, Rodon, who just threw a no-hitter, if he's a legitimate member of that rotation, tell me one starting rotation in the American League that's any better than the Chicago White Sox right now. And their bullpen is just fireball after fireball. Yes, the Eloy Jimenez injury sucks. But they got the MVP in Jose Abreu, Yoan Moncada. Tim Anderson, I know, is hurt right now. Hopefully he gets back soon. I think he's an extremely underrated player. I was talking about in my fantasy baseball show that there's going to be a run on shortstops early. And if you feel the need to upgrade your team in a certain way, 
you can wait and get Tim Anderson later on in a draft and it will be an absolute steal. We'll see if I'm right. I got two fantasy baseball teams with Tim Anderson on it. But this is a White Sox team that, tell me, I mean, are the Twins better? Royals, Tigers, they may have some good times coming ahead, but I don't think they're ready yet. The Indians took a step back with the deals that they made last year. The AL Central is for them to take. But thinking about some other teams that could be off to good starts. Yeah, you look at the Mets. They won a couple games against the Phillies. I wouldn't get too bent out of shape over it. The National League East is going to be very competitive. It's going to be, I think it's still going to be the best division in baseball. I like that division. I like what we're going to see out of the AL West, in all honesty. You know, is Oakland going to be something? I don't think they're going to be that good, but I look at the Angels. I think the Astros are going to be good. And I wouldn't mind, I wouldn't be surprised to see the Seattle Mariners take a step forward this year. Texas is going to have a hard time. The Rockies in the, in the NL West are going to have a hard time. The Pirates in the NL Central are going to have a hard time. But you think of the, the NL East, and I look at it like this because, you know, a lot of people look at the Phillies kind of as a team on the outside looking in. And there was one distinct opportunity that if it passed the Phillies, I'd understand why people were down on the Phillies. And there was, there was, it was kind of handed to them. It was a gift given by the New York Mets. The Mets made the decision to sign James McCann to be their starting catcher for the next four years. Basically took him out of the market for JT Romuda. And the Mets should have been the favorite for Romuda. He was the best catcher available. Better defensively than James McCann. Better offensively than James McCann. And I don't care what kind of homer blinders you have on as a New York Mets fan, but that's true. The Phillies got the better player. Now, four years down the road, five years down the road, are the Phillies going to look at the real Muto contract and say, hey, maybe he's overpaid for what he's bringing to the table right now? I don't know. But I think he's got a solid six years left in him. And I think the six years and a hundred or so million that he got was not a crazy contract. Now, Mets fans are going to get pissed at me again. James McCann hit a home run. He had three hits. Please don't let it dilute what James McCann is. He's going to be a defensive first catcher. And you got a guy like Jacob DeGrom taking a ball every fifth day, and the Mets don't score enough runs for him. The Mets don't like Jacob DeGrom. I, I don't understand. Here's a guy that at, at times has put the team on his back. At, the, at times when the Mets can't win a ball game to save their life. He goes out there and throws seven shutout innings and hits a home run. Yet his teammates don't seem to pick him up whenever, he, whenever he's got the ball. Maybe he's due. Maybe he'll throw the seven shutout innings and he'll get ten runs in his next start. But you, you look at a team that could probably use some offense. Had opportunities. Lost out on George Springer. And that may not be their fault. They, they got outbid. You know, there's no full disclosure when it comes to agents and what type of offers are out there from other teams. Most agents don't pin offers up against each other. You try to get the most out of one team, 
And if there's a number that you're you're just not going to reach, you you meant take that to the player. And you say, listen, the Blue Jays are offering this much more. You want to play in Toronto? Or do you want me to ding the Mets and see if they can get their offer up? They missed out on George Springer. They voluntarily backed out of JT Romuto. And you're going to wonder down the road if that's going to be something that's going to hurt the New York Mets as we go on the season. Are the Phillies in trouble? No, I think the Phillies are going to be fine. I think the Marlins are going to be fine. That's what's going to make the NL East the, the most interesting division to follow throughout the entire season. Because you're going to forget about the Nationals, the team that won the World Series just two years ago. The Atlanta Braves, who seem to win a division you know, almost every year. And you're like, ah, they're not off to the best of starts. We're 10, 12, 15 games into the season. You can make a case... And I'd be surprised if the Marlins won the division. I would. To, to, be, to be honest, to be fair, to be transparent, I, I think a lot of people predict that the Marlins will finish in fifth place in that division. I don't think it's necessarily true. I don't think it has to happen. But to say that the Marlins could win the division, I think that's a little bit of a stretch. Maybe they could finish over 500 and compete for a wild card spot. I think that's all on the table. The question is going to be is how strong is their bullpen going to be? You think of a Yimmy Garcia. You think of a couple of the other arms they got there. And you say, are they good enough when shit hits the fan? When the games really mean something. And you got, you're starting out those guys in the 7th, 8th, and ninth inning. I think their starting pitching is strong. You know, Rogers looks like he's going to be a good pitcher. Starling Marte was a very good acquisition for them last year. Uh, Jesus Aguiar came off of a down season with the Brewers kind of just at the right time. You know, Corey Dickerson, Jazz Chisholm looks like he's going to be a star. Or it might be a star. Brian Anderson's kind of that glue player. If I wasn't a Mets fan, I'd say, hey, I, li I like this Marlins team. Listen, the Braves are going to be the Braves. The Nationals are going to be the Nationals. And don't sleep on the Phillies. The middle of the Phillies lineup with Hoskins, who's off to a great start, and Bryce Harper and Real Muto, they're going to be able to score runs. Gene Segura is a guy that, that hits. Didi Gregorius is a, an excellent leader. Yankee fans can attest to that. I'm not talking about managers. If you heard the beginning of my show, the manager doesn't mean anything. It doesn't matter if the manager's Joe Girardi or Luis Rojas or Don Mattingly or Brian Snicker or Davey Martinez. It wouldn't matter, matter, it wouldn't matter if the manager was John Pielli. Major League Baseball manager is only as good as the team that's assembled around them. And a Major League Baseball manager is only as good as the front office. So moving on. I did want to get a little bit into basketball. Kyrie Irving goes out there and you know about a couple months ago he decides, hey, you know, I'm going through some, some tough times. I, I need a little bit of a break. The Nets granted to him. Coinciding with the trade for James Harden. Kevin Durant at the time was out. 
So you think a team that's got three stars right now, there was certainly a time earlier in the season where they kind of needed Kyrie to be a leader on that team. Now, I, I get that a lot of sports talk hosts are going to kind of walk on eggshells, teeter around the whole mental health thing because you don't ever want to put your foot in your mouth. You don't ever want to criticize somebody and then you find out that they really have some mental issues that need some serious help. Because listen, you think of suicide as it's out there in this country, it's probably as prolific as ever. There are people that are taking their own lives on a daily basis, some without even any warning signs. So this kind of moves into the sports world when you look at a situation of a Kyrie Irving that we don't really know the exact reason why Kyrie Irving isn't playing, but we know that he is 100% healthy from a physical standpoint. He's not dealing with an injury. He is, uh, from a health standpoint, a physical health standpoint, he is ready to go out there and play. We know what the commissioner, and Commissioner Adam Silver, has enabled as you've watched the NBA change over the last five years. Remember Adam Silver? Didn't seem like it was that long ago. He was threatening to find teams and players that were sitting out games when they were healthy. And I remember being on WCTC with Mike Sanfilippo talking about this. So it's have to be about maybe three, four years ago. The commissioner getting pissed off. The commissioner kind of putting his foot down saying, listen, these uh, did not play because of uh, rest or maintenance day is something that's not going to be accepted anymore. And the commissioner's turned on it. And maybe the commissioner was forced into it. We know about the, the advocation of mental health and the fact that it is important and to, for players to get rest. But, you know, there's the other side of it of the fans and fans are coming back into arenas. And I would think you got fans, diehard fans, that are dying to get into uh, an NBA arena to watch a basketball game. But there's also a lot of fans that are kind of tepid, kind of on the outside, like, oh, I, don't, I don't know if it's time to go back. I don't know if I feel comfortable going to watch a basketball game. So we're still in a spot where I don't think you're really, you're, you're really trying to win anybody over. But pre-coronavirus, fans were filling stadiums in the National Basketball Association. And what's the difference between basketball and other sports? Basketball is an individual player game more than the NFL is, more than Major League Baseball is. Fans, especially younger fans, go to an NBA game to see a player. Sometimes it's a player on the opposing team. Sometimes it's a player that, you know, let's say there's a Knicks game, they're playing the Golden State Warriors, and the fans want to see Steph Curry. The fans want to see the Lakers and LeBron James. This is something that probably isn't going away anytime soon. It's going to continue to be a factor in the NBA. Fans want to see the players. So that fan that's going to see a Clippers game and wants to see Kawhi Leonard, but happens to go on a day where he's scheduled for a quote-unquote maintenance day, that fan's losing out. But let me 
get to this as it applies to Kyrie Irving. Because I think Kyrie Irving is becoming not only the poster child to maintenance and DNP uh, did not want to, but it's a bigger issue in the NBA because you think of what this can set the precedence for. And I'll make the basic comparison to any job, and it doesn't care what you do for a living, it doesn't matter. You have a responsibility to show up for your shift. You have a responsibility to work the days that you're expected to work. Each regular employee, for the most part, is given a handful of personal days they can take over the course of a year. And whatever that set number is, it is what it is. You use up those personal days, maybe you have some sick time, maybe you have some vacation time, but if you use all your time up in January or February, most employers, and just about all employers, are not going to give you extra time because you used your time up. And you wonder if in any player's contract there's anything in there that gives them leeway in regards to days that they could sit. I would think if there's a, a high school graduation of their kid or something family-oriented, you know, maybe a child's getting married or something, you know, bar mitzvah, you, know, you could probably uh, understand somebody getting a night off if it happens to coincide with a game. Other than that, player, just like an employee, John Q employee anywhere in the country doing anything for a living, should be obligated to show up for work and work the times that they are supposed to. And Kyrie Irving is not working every day. He's there for practices, which I'm sure he doesn't have to attend if he doesn't want to. And games. There's 82 of them over the course of the season. And you want to talk about scheduled days off? We've been through this already. It seems like it's an every two-week thing with Kyrie Irving. Ah, you know what? Yeah, I don't feel like playing basketball. And Kyrie Irving's got the right at some point to make a note of whether he wants to play basketball or not. Because if he doesn't, he can be a hero to many people and forfeit the $40 million that he's getting paid each season by the Brooklyn Nets. Because you know what? If he decides to do that, all of a sudden he goes from somebody that may be stealing money to a hero. He's in Gilmesh territory. He's in Andrew Luck territory. And what do those two players have in common? Gilmesh, the former pitcher for the Seattle Mariners and Kansas City Royals, and of course Andrew Luck the quarterback for the Baltimore Colts. They both voluntarily retired in the middle of a contract. Didn't request a buyout. Walked away from the sport, forfeiting the millions and millions of dollars that they were to earn because of their own decision. That's a hero in my mind. Somebody that cares that much about what they want to do and wants to walk away from the game that much Kyrie Irving's had a chance to be that hero. At some point, he's got to look himself in the mirror and ask himself, does he want to be an NBA player or does he want to do something else? And if he wants to do something else, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Is he mentally capable of playing NBA basketball? Because you know what? That might not have been a question that I would ask coming into this season, 
But this discussion, the overemphasis now on mental health, Kyrie Irving can't get himself to play four basketball games in a row without needing a day off. I'm going to question whether or not mentally he is in a position that he could be able to play basketball. And if not, he should consider walking away. He should consider retiring. Calvin Johnson retired in the middle of a contract. The Detroit Lions wide receiver. He's up as a Hall of Fame nominee this year. Kyrie Irving at some point is going to have to look, his, look himself in the mirror and ask himself if he wants to play basketball. And I'm not saying he's taking somebody's job. There's few players that can do what Kyrie Irving can do on a basketball court. He got a shot, a pass from LeBron James. He hit a huge shot that won a championship for the Cleveland Cavaliers. And he can take that moment and live the rest of his life off of it if he wants to. If he doesn't want to play basketball, he should consider walking away. And how many games do you allow somebody to sit? How many times over the course of the season are you as an organization going to be okay with a player choosing not to play? If you don't want to play, $40 million could go to somewhere else. The Nets could spend it on another player. So finally, I was thinking about this, and you hear the expression when it comes to football and quarterbacks. If you have two quarterbacks, you have zero quarterbacks. And it's true. It absolutely is. There's no such thing as a quarterback controversy in the NFL. We like to hype them up. We like to say, hey, this guy's pinned up against this guy, and you'll wonder whether they're going to play. What what decision are they going to make when it's when you're you don't have an unequivocal starting quarterback in the NFL you you have a problem quarterback is the most important position on an NFL football field and the Chicago Bears four years ago put a lot of emphasis in a young quarterback out of the University of North Carolina named Mitch Trubisky they gave up a lot to move up in a draft for the number two overall pick. And they snagged him. Four years go by. He wasn't the savior that they thought that he would be. They don't pick up his fifth year option. He ends up signing to be Josh Allen's backup with the Buffalo Bills. Now they make a decision. They got Nick Foles sitting there as, a, as their only quarterback at the moment. And they signed Andy Dalton. Who, by the way, is coming off of an uninspired season with the Dallas Cowboys. A season that, by the way, he was signed to be Dak Prescott's backup. It's good to have a solid backup. And Andy Dalton was a, a good starter for many years with the Cincinnati Bengals. He was expected to do some sitting. Dak Prescott gets hurt. He gets thrown in action. And he looked probably as bad as he's ever looked over the course of his career. Now, can he play? Can he make a throw? Can he win you a game? Yeah. But doesn't have any track record in the postseason. So the Bears bring this guy in, and you expect him to be the starting quarterback there with Nick Foles as the backup. What's my best description of Nick Foles? I think of Jeff Hostetler. 
Jeff Hostetler was Phil Simms' backup for a handful of years with the New York Giants and is pressed into action when Phil Simms got hurt. Giants have a very good system in place. They're able to run the ball. Their defense is led by LT. Bill Parcells is the head coach. And they win a Super Bowl. Jeff Hostetler will forever be a Super Bowl winning quarterback. And Jeff Hostetler capitalized on that. Got a chance to start the next year while Phil Simms was recovering. Signed a contract with the, with the Los Angeles and then Oakland Raiders. Won some games. Took the team to the playoffs. Built himself a career over one Super Bowl victory. Problem was, Jeff Hostetler was never was not your typical Super Bowl winning quarterback. He was not an all-time great. He was not somebody that was ever going to get consideration for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Nick Foles ends up being put into action when Carson Wentz, during an MVP season, ends up being out for the year. Leads the team in the playoffs, catches a ball, you know, a, a little bit of fire, plays the game of his life in the Super Bowl as a Super Bowl MVP, and the Philadelphia Eagles win their first Super Bowl, and their quarterback is Nick Foles. Nick Foles rode that into another playoff appearance with the Eagles when Carson Wentz got hurt the next year. Ends up signing a big deal with the Jacksonville Jaguars. He gets hurt. Gardner Minshew starts. They trade him to the Chicago Bears. He wins a couple games there before sitting the bench for most of the season with Mitch Trubisky as the starter. The question is, can Nick Foles start over Andy Dalton? The answer is probably yes. My bigger question is what the hell are the Chicago Bears thinking? They've had issues at the quarterback position. The only Super Bowl they've been in since 1985, Rex Grossman was their quarterback. And they had no chance. So this is a team that for years has struggled at the starting quarterback position and you're giving the ball to Andy Dalton, a guy who led the Cincinnati Bengals to the playoffs but never won a game and is just probably coming off of his worst season. Was signed to be Dak Prescott's backup, was put into action and looked as bad as he's ever looked in his entire career. And that's the guy that's going to be the starting quarterback for the Chicago Bears? kind of leads me to believe that the Bears are going to be looking for a quarterback in this year's draft. I think the top three players are pretty much set as far as who's going to be selected. We've known for years that Trevor Lawrence was going to go number one. He's going to go to the Jacksonville Jaguars, and Urban Meyer's going to have his quarterback, obviously. Lawrence coming out of the University of Clemson. Looks like the Jets, with the trade of Sam Darnold, are going to get themselves Zach Wilson out of BYU. The San Francisco 49ers moved up to get the number three pick so they can take Mac Jones. Trey Lance is probably the next best quarterback. Are the Falcons going to choose him with pick number four? Now if I'm the Bears and I'm interested enough in Trey Lance, maybe it's time to move up. But if you're a Chicago Bears fan, you've been through the song and dance before. You've seen the team give up a ton of assets for a player that is far from a sure thing. And I think a healthy Trevor Lawrence is going to be one of the best quarterbacks we've seen coming out of the draft in years. He's going to be the next Andrew Luck, or at least what Andrew Luck was expected to be when he was drafted number one overall by the Indianapolis Colts. Outside of that, there's a drop-off. 
problem is the NFL has struggled so much for quality quarterbacks that every year they hype up these kids and make them out to be better than they are. I don't know if Zach Wilson was worth the Jets trading Sam Darnold. Is Sam Darnold going to be better with the Carolina Panthers than Zach Wilson's going to be with the New York Jets? I don't know. And is Mac Jones going to be that good? Is he going to be a perennial quarterback, uh, regular quarterback for a solid playoff team? Is he better than Jimmy Garoppolo with the San Francisco 49ers? Trey Lance, is he that good? Justin Fields, got a lot of hype coming into the season. A lot of people are jumping off that bandwagon. But the problem is, is outside of Lawrence in this year's NFL draft, it's a coin flip. I don't know if there's any quarterback, especially using such a high draft pick, that's anywhere close to a short thing. And of course, Trevor Lawrence, knock on wood, you hope it doesn't happen, but he could get hurt tomorrow and never be the same. I could happen to anybody. But I look back at this and I really, I really believe the Jets, the 49ers, whoever takes Trey Lance, whoever takes Justin Fields, taking a major, major risk. And I'm not, I, don't, I don't know what to say about it. You know, think of Tua Tagliavoa. Looked great in Alabama. And I know he had that injury that really made some teams or some people in the NFL kind of think twice about uh, how high of a draft pick he should be. But he's one year into Miami and they're, they're looking to make a decision of whether he's going to be the quarterback of the future. It's uncertain. And I don't know if there's anybody outside of Trevor Lawrence in this year's draft that I think is any more of a sure thing. I don't think he's any more, I don't think Zach Wilson, Trey Lance, Mac Jones, Justin Fields, I don't think any of these guys are any more of a sure thing than Sam Darnold. I don't think they're any more of a sure thing than Jimmy Garoppolo. You, know, you look at some other starting quarterbacks in the NFL. I can't, I can't guarantee that one of these young quarterbacks are going to go in there and lead the team. I mean, think of Josh Rosen. Josh Rosen was taken, what was he, taken 10th overall by the Arizona Cardinals. What did he say when he was drafted? He said that there was nine teams that were going to regret not taking him. Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, Josh Allen. I hate to say it, but... I don't want any one of those three quarterbacks over Josh Rosen right now. Josh Rosen sitting on a bench with the San Francisco 49ers at the end of the year, being on the practice squad of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I understand the Arizona Cardinals went into a complete free fall. Rosen's first season there. They had a head coach. They fired him. They brought in a new head coach that wanted a particular player. And they had the worst record in the NFL. And they took Kyler Murray with the number one overall pick. That's probably the worst case scenario that could have happened to anybody. But we're only talking what? Three years? Four years? Year number four? And Josh Rosen? Probably could be had by anybody. So as you look at it in this draft, is there anybody that's more of a sure thing than that outside of Trevor Lawrence? And the answer is no. I do want to thank everybody for tuning in to the Past Ball Show. Quick recap. Managers of Major League Baseball, I think it's the most overrated head coaching position in all of sports. They don't make lineups. 
They barely make pitching changes. I don't even think they do. They have no control over defensive alignment and where, where players play on defense. Their job is to be a scapegoat, number one. Number two, be a guidance counselor. Get a good pulse of the clubhouse. And number three, implement the game plan that comes from the analytics staff and the front office. And if they don't do what they're told, it's insubordination. And if they make a decision to do anything on their own, they better be right. Because not only are they looking at the classic second guess from John Q. Baseball fan, but they're looking at insubordination for what their organization tells him tells them to do. You can check out the podcast on Apple Music, on Spotify, on Amazon Music, and of course on YouTube. This is the Past Ball Show brought to you by JohnPaley.com, by St. Aloysius Church, and school in Jackson, New Jersey. By Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. We'll be back with you next week. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.